look at Romans chapter 3. Now, I'm going to speak to the issue of the cross of Christ this week, and Eric, if everything goes correctly, will speak next Wednesday on the resurrection of Christ. Now, we've been talking over the last three months under a basic outline of creation, then the fall, and then redemption, and then consummation. So we're trying to keep that in front of you. Many times what we find in our evangelical churches, that which is emphasized is the fall and redemption. And that's a natural thing. So Eric and I have been trying our best to retool the way we speak in such a way that we incorporate creation and we incorporate consummation in what we're trying to teach. That would be a full uh, way of looking at the way God re reveals himself in the scripture. Now beginning in uh, chapter 3 of Romans, verse 21, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest, apart from the law, through the law, and the prophets bearing witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, and there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, and this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at this present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, we're at the point in time where we're right on the threshold of Good Friday. We're right on the threshold of Easter. Now, as Christians, we have moved away from the celebrations and the feast of the Old Testament, and we've come into the new era in which the things that we celebrate are really the victories, the things that have been accomplished by Christ. So, in, in the Christian sense of our celebrations, we remember the Incarnation, and that date of December 25th was pretty much an arbitrary date. There's no way of assigning a specific time of the year when we know Christ died, but that's the time of year we have chosen to celebrate this first event of Incarnation. Then we come to Good Friday, that's followed by Easter, 
That's followed by uh, Ascension Sunday, and then that is followed by Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out by Christ upon the church. So we focus today basically on the whole idea of what it means to call Friday the time of Christ's crucifixion Good Friday. Last week we looked at the idea of substitutionary atonement and we picked that idea up from the creation and we moved it all the way through to the end of time. And simply this means that Jesus stood in our place in reference to the law. Jesus stands in your place, in my place, in his life in reference to the fulfilling of the law of God. Now we talk about one aspect of this we call Christ's act of obedience. He was our substitute in that he lived a perfect life. He fulfilled every aspect of God's requirements as they're demonstrated to us in the law of God. He kept all the commandments. You can remember at the end of his life he asked people, which one of you accuses me of sin? Well, he had not sinned uh, because he was perfect. Now, he stood in your place. None of us have kept the law perfectly, but Jesus kept the law perfectly for you. He kept the law perfectly for me. He did that as his act of obedience. We talk about his passive obedience in that he endured on the cross the pain of the penalty of our sin. We know what the book of Romans tells us in other parts of the Bible. The wages of sin is death. So Christ took our place. He stood in our place. He was our substitute. Uh, again, many things that we've done that have violated God's law in many, many dimensions. The penalty for that has been paid for in all its dimensions in the death of Christ. Now that's basically where we want to focus today. Now think of it in a human sense. All of us have been in a situation where we've experienced a very good and very healthy relationship with another person. And then something happened. And whatever it was that happened, it came in and it took that healthy relationship and it made it terribly wrong. Something occurred to break that relationship and fellowship. We were in Adam at the creation in a perfectly strong and healthy relationship. Satan and sin came in and something terribly wrong occurred there. You know, we, we oftentimes find these things happening to us as humans, and we really never thought anything would ever happen like that. Two ministers were talking with one another. It was just this simple. Well, the one minister was remarking about how his friend had stood up in a meeting and made two or three or four comments, and the first minister was kind of questioning the second about that, and he says, you know, I just kind of stand up and speak. I'm kind of that way. It's just sometimes, sometimes I'm just kind of an airhead. 
Now, the minister said that about himself. I'm just kind of an airhead. Now, you've probably done something like that about yourself. You may have said it to somebody. Well, the second man, or the first man now, is in another conversation with another group of ministers. There's a group of ministers over here. And one of them brings up the occasion when the first one stood up and said some things that didn't make sense. And so this man said, well, you know, he sh sometimes he can just be kind of an airhead. Well, a number of months later, it got back by two or three different people that this minister had said of this man, he was a airhead. The relationship was ruined. It was ruined. Now, we've experienced things like that, and it's sad. We've experienced situations where sin has come in, and it's very concrete and real and disastrous. But it can be very simple, just like this illustration of these two ministers. What is this that's happened here? Well, one of the things that we see is that these relationships that are broken, somewhere at the root of this is going to be anger. Somewhere in this, there's going to be something of a blemish or a stain. There's going to be that which separates what we call enmity or alienation, possibly mixed with that as some hostility. There's a concrete wrong, oftentimes, that can be attached to what happened here. You take all of this, and it gets all knotted up. It binds itself around people, and it gets all twisted and bound up together. And then where there one time was trust, now because of what's happened, this trust seems to have been violated. Now these are all the ideas that we find in the Bible that constitute what it means to sin. All of these things. Now, sometimes when we, we try to talk to people about what it means to be a Christian and how it means to act as a Christian, we kind of simplify this. We kind of take it and make it a very compact system. We might just say you just need to forgive and forget. We say that. You just need to get over it. We say it. We've got lots of words. But the problem is when we express ourselves that way and we don't really take into some real sense the total aggravation that sin brings into a relationship, we never really get over it. We never really get beyond the things that sin has affected. It's complicated. Uh, now, Paul. We come back to Paul, and we're talking about the idea of redemption from this sin. How does Paul begin to deal with that? Well, he's a Pharisee, and so he is reflecting back on all the testimony about all the Old Testament sacrifices. When Paul looks at our sin, and he sees the Old Testament had a manner of dealing with sin that was comprehensive. 
And so then Paul begins to expound and testify about things like the message of John the Baptist. Now, what was the principal thing that John the Baptist said about Jesus? Remember? Behold, the lamb that does what? Takes away the sin of the world. Now, that's what John the Baptist said. Now, Paul is looking at all of those Old Testament sacrifices. Here's the language of John the Baptist. Jesus is a sacrificial lamb. And so, Paul, as he begins to expound to the primarily pagan world of his day, he coordinates all of those Old Testament sacrifices with the one sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God. And he shows how Jesus' death on the cross is the fulfillment and the perfection of all those Old Testament sacrifices. So when we think about what does it mean to celebrate Good Friday, well, we need to go back and say all those Old Testament sacrifices, all of those just kind of narrowly focused down, and Jesus fulfills them, but he fulfills them in all the dimensions of human ruin. In other words, the basis of this redemption leads to the whole idea of God's restoration. You have to have redemption prior to having restoration. And so as we look at what Christ has done here, it's the beginning of a new creation. That's what we begin to see happening here at the cross and what we see happening at the resurrection. Now, what is redemption? How does it look? I'm going to take the same little outline of six points. We talk about God being angry. Now, we don't use this language a great deal anymore, but it's very biblical language. Uh, it's the wrath of God. Now, if you look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it begins that way. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven or revealed from God against all manner of ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Well, you come over to the passage that we just read in Romans chapter 3 and in verse 25 it said of Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation in his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation answers the wrath of God. Now, the idea of propitiation, again, is it's something of a surprise. It's, it's unexpected. When we talk about a propitious event, it tends to be something that caught us off guard. The death of Christ, in its meaning, caught everybody off guard. Who would have thought that that's what was happening on that cross? And all of a sudden, it's a wake-up well, that's what God was doing. So the cross becomes for us a propitious advice, a, a, a propitious time when the wrath of God, instead of falling on you or me, 
falls upon Jesus Christ. And Jesus takes the wrath of God in its entirety upon himself. In other words, now, the way the theologians speak of it, God has been propitiated, and now God is dealing with us propitiously, and the wrath of God has now become the love of God because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross in and through his blood. Now, the simplest way to look at this personally is this. If the wrath or anger of God that was due me has fell entirely on the person of Jesus, then my God and my heavenly Father is not angry toward me. That's good news. That's the gospel message. And this is the thing that we need to share. Now, how do you know somebody's experience really the depths of God's propitiation in Christ? Well, one of the clearest ways you can see it is, are they angry? If you're dealing with a person that's angry all the time, you begin to think that they don't know much about what it means to be loved. They don't sense the love of God in their heart. Whereas a person, if we say, like the health food people, you are what you, if you eat propitiation, if you eat the grace of God, it's supposed to take its sense and fill all the capillaries of your system. So if you're eating grace, you should be living grace. You should be a gracious person. By the way, I know this would be a surprise to Carr Dodson, but when I go north of the Mason-Dixon line, I find an amazing number of those people up there that are gracious. I know that surprises him from America's Georgia, but they're up there. They're droves of them. Gracious because of Christ. Now, this is where you see redemption, but being gracious begins to show that you're in the business of having this reformation and reconstruction of God's working in your life. Now, we, we need to come to grips with this for ourselves. Have we eaten the propitiation of Christ in such a way that I can say, I know God's not angry with me? Can we say that? Then we can say that to somebody else, and that's going to be good news to them and for them. When we talk about sin, we have a consequence, talk about stain. Sin stains us, and we need to realize that. Sin marks us. And the crucifixion of Christ is meant to deal with the stain. So we can say something like this from 1 John, a very simple statement in verse, chapter 1, verse 7. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Now, what about the stain there? We've got tons of friends who feel that they're marked. They're marked by whoever they are and whatever they've done, and many times they can't get over it. You can talk to them about this, but many times it's very difficult to penetrate into their inner person 
to understand the reality that the cross of Christ, the death of Christ, is powerful enough to take away the stain. Um, Now, again, in the passage that I mentioned many times when I'm up here, Hebrews 9, 14, and 15. The blood of Christ is sufficient to cleanse your conscience from sinful things in order that you might serve the living God. Highest privilege in the world? To serve the living God. People don't serve the living God. Why don't a lot of people serve the living God? You want to know why? I can tell you why. They don't feel worthy. They just don't feel worthy that they could serve the living God. Now, the, the gospel message is, I've cleansed your conscience. I've cleansed you. You're clean. Now, you're clean to live for me. So, the stain of sin is met by the blood of Jesus Christ who cleanses us perfectly. You think of that man, Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. You begin to think of the stain that he knew, and now you begin to think of the freedom with which he lived. Uh, One of my favorite authors is a man named F.F. Bruce, and Paul is his hero. And so he writes basically a biographical sketch of Paul, and he writes it under the title of Paul, the apostle of the heart set free. That's what, that's what Paul's all about. His heart's set free. He wants your heart to be set free, free from stain. We talk about the crucifixion, and we talk about sin's alienation. Whenever sin comes in, it separates. It brings alienation and enmity and often hostility. And we're told that in Christ and through his blood, that there has been made peace through the blood of his cross. And that he is reconciling all things, whether in heaven, our relationship with God there, or on earth, our relationship with one another here, He is reconciling all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. You can say of us individually, once you were alienated from God, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in order to present you holy and blameless and beyond reproach. He's reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. And so the whole aspect of a broken relationship with God and broken relationships on earth are made one in peace through what Christ has accomplished on that cross. What about the actual wrong or the transgression of our sin? Well, Jesus was put to death for sin. He was put to death for the actual wrong. The wrong that occurred was the the reason for Christ's death. So in Romans chapter 4.25, Paul can say he was put to death for our sin and he was raised for our justification. Put to death for our sin. Again, this aspect of substitution. What does it mean for him to be put to death for our sin? 
it means that as we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're justified. Wrong, we're in condemnation. In faith in Christ, the wrong is taken away and we stand in a relationship of being justified before God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So then Paul can say there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now in relationship to things being bound up, when we think about what it means to be involved in sin, it means to be involved in bondage. That's Jesus' language. Jesus can say anyone who is perpetually in sin is in bondage to sin, in bondage to Satan. Jesus uses both of these metaphors to talk about the reality of bondage in our lives. Satan binds. Jesus says the one who sins serves Satan. Sin binds us to the law. We look at the law and we see that it condemns sin. Sin binds us to the penalty of the law. The wages of sin is death. And so in all of these things, we are bound. Now, when I like to think about this, I, I want to say, yes, we're bound. But what it means is that it's not just a simple binding. All of this stuff is all wrapped up and bound together. I used to fish a lot. And when I was fishing, every once in a while, me or one of my buddies would get a backlash or the line would come off a spinning reel and a big gob. And the worst thing that you could do when it happened was let anything tighten that up. Because it was already a bird's nest, and if it got a knot in it, wow, it just compounded getting that bird nest apart. That's the way sin is in our lives. You think it's something simple, and you go to talk to the person about what their perspective of, of that sin is, and we find for them it's not simple at all. They're seeing all kinds of things here, and all of a sudden you're beginning to think, wow, that person's right. That's what sin's bondage does to us. Well, what does Christ do? Christ comes in as our precious redeemer. It says that he sets the prisoner free. He's free from sin. He pays the ransom price for our sin through his blood. Jesus comes in for us. He defeats Satan, the strong man, and he sets us free from the dominion of darkness. That's redemption. But he sets us free to the glorious liberty of the children of God. Whom Christ sets free? Well, we know the rest of it is free indeed. Jesus releases us from the law because he's the one who has fulfilled that law for us perfectly and he releases us from the penalty of the law by becoming the penalty for us. So when we talk about Christ and his crucifixion at this sense, the bondage is broken. Over and over again, we've seen testimony of people whose lives were a disaster and all of a sudden, their lives are nothing short of a miracle. Chuck Colson, in our lifetime, is a person just like that. But we've experienced that if we've come to faith in Christ. We've been set free from this bondage. 
Lastly, crucifixion of Christ in our broken trust. God trusted us in the garden. He made a covenant with us. We violated that covenant. We violated that original trust. Jesus came into the world in a new covenant, and he kept that covenant trust perfectly. Now, he fulfilled all of our obligations. Now, the response comes in at this point. The response to Christ in his crucifixion has to be a response of, all of these things are things I could never do for myself. All of these things are things that Jesus has done for me. God obviously wants me in a covenant relationship to put my trust in Jesus. Now, all the time I'm running into people who say things like this, that's too easy, that's too simple. But look what Paul is saying here, because he knows that. And so in Romans 3, 24, he says, these people who have put their faith in Christ are justified by his grace as a gift. This is the gift of God. Now, this idea of gift never goes away for Paul. So if you turn the page over to chapter 5, verse 15, he says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. If the many through the one man's trespass died, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. In the free gift is not the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following the one's trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many transgressions brought justification. And then he goes on and says, the abundance of the grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And then again in the verse many of us have memorized in chapter 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. Over and over again, this whole aspect of redemption is always placed before us as God's free gift. But what's the one thing that God calls upon us to do? To simply believe in his son, put our faith in him, put our trust in him, become his disciples. Then all of these things that have corrupted our life become like a springboard for us to carry the redemption of Christ from our past experience into the experience of other people who have not yet received this free gift in Christ Jesus. We have all the ways of understanding a person that's an unbeliever in their sin. We have all the ways to explain to them the full orb dimension of what it means to know Christ and to know him crucified. These are the benefits. Eric, next week, will deal with the aspect of the beginning of restoration as it's demonstrated through the resurrection of Christ. Well, let's pray. Father, we do pray and ask that you would bless us. We want to remember the cross. We want to remember it for ourselves. We want to remember that it was a free gift to us. 
and we want to be generous and free in giving that gift to others. Now help us to do this in Christ's name. Amen.